On this episode of The Playbook, talk about legends. Mark Andreessen said about John Hennessy, the chairman of Alphabet, that he may be the godfather of the Silicon Valley. John Hennessy so big that when you type in John in Google, he comes up number three. You know you're big when you just type John and number three comes up. They have acquired Alphabet over 200 companies, including companies like YouTube and Google. There is nobody bigger, nobody better to give us advice here on The Playbook than John Hennessy. Join us now for The Playbook. This is Entrepreneur's The Playbook, where each week I bring you some of the greatest athletes, celebrities, and entrepreneurs to talk about their personal and professional playbook to success and what made them champions on the field and in the boardroom. I'm your host, David Meltzer. I have one of my mentors, a legend, John Hennessy, chairman of Alphabet Inc. He has lived the long journey of the Silicon Valley. In fact, one of my other mentors, Mr. Andreessen, I remember, I think he, I forget the exact thing he said about you being the godfather of the Silicon Valley. That's quite a compliment. Uh, but I'm going to take it back a little bit because you and I share one thing. We're both one of six children. And people ask me about the successes I've had and the lessons I've learned. And a lot of it is attributed to my five siblings and my parents and how I was brought up. What have you uh, seen throughout your career of the significance of that family dynamic that you grew up in? Oh, Dave, that's a great question because I think it's a, it's a wonderful place to start. It's really important. My, um, you know, my mother was a school teacher. My father was an engineer. So my father instilled love of science and math and my mother instilled love of reading. And those are still things that have driven me and kept me passionate my entire life. Um, you know, and growing up in a family of six, you learn a lot about sharing and being together. And, and of course there's the usual sibling rivalry and all that sort of thing. But I think you also build relationships over that time that are lifelong. And in, to that respect, the competitive nature of having you know six children and it's an advantage because you can self-regulate it. It's a natural dynamic that you know the siblings all want to be better at the other siblings and get more attention and it, manifest and people ask me my, my siblings all went to the ivy leagues i'm the only one in my family to get rejected by stanford by the way you weren't the president at the time i always i use that as my badge of honor that i get to speak at stanford now and they won't let me in for law school or undergrad uh, and it's still my favorite college uh, but moreover it was so competitive that when i got out into the real world i was still more concerned about what my siblings and my parents thought of my career than anybody else yeah, sure. And, you know, the other thing that was formulated for me is I spent every summer at a summer camp and it was all it was all games and competition and swimming and learning new skills. And so you're constantly driving in a fair way to learn how to compete and, and, and push yourself. And to that matter, empathy is another thing that with a large family you learn. And I feel since we're both been involved in technology for so long, that we run a risk that people are becoming less empathetic. We have less human interaction, emotional intelligence is playing less and less of a role without that interactive, especially with COVID and the separation that we're experiencing now. How has those lessons of empathy uh, worked for you throughout this journey? And, and what should people think about today in an empathetic way that, you know, with technology where it's at? Yeah, I, I think it's really true. I think. You know, building great companies is not a, is, is about doing great things for your customers and for your employees. It's not just about trying to make yourself fantastically rich before you're 40. 
uh, contrary to what people have said um, re or have done recently. So that empathy, I, I still remember the day I took my first company public, MIPS, and on that day, I, we made sure every single person in the company held stock, every single person. And I remember going in and seeing the receptionist on the day we went public. And, uh, you know, she made a small amount of money on it. Uh, and I said, what are you planning to do? She goes, this is going to be my child's college fund. Oh. That's when you realize, realize the important work you're doing and how people in your team will benefit from it. Yeah, it's funny. When I started the business with Warren Moon, uh, they asked what my goal was. And I said, before I leave here, I want every one of my employees to be a millionaire. That every single one. I don't, I've, I've had money. I, I get it. And uh, and to uh, you know my own success, I see now that the maturity of our business and the people that work with us, their success, I, it brings so much. Just like children, right? It brings so much more joy when they buy their first house or sending their kids to college, and they never dreamed they would be able to do so. Um, along with it, though, comes what I call suffering. Uh, any entrepreneur throughout the year, suffering to me is the consistent, persistent pursuit of your potential, how to deal with pain, which I believe is an indicator. Uh, and I always say I look for people that have courage and courage to me is the willingness to do what you must do to be who you must be. And that's courage to me. How has courage in that respect, how I defined it, played a role in your success with the consistent, persistent pursuit of your own potential? Yeah, it's a great question because I'll, I'll tell you a little story. And when we started our first company, um, company got off to a great start, got an early customer, uh, but then the person who was leading it expanded too fast and was alienating a lot of the engineering staff. And so the founders had to actually go to the board and say, we need to replace the CEO. And the, the board was shocked. They had no idea what was going on at the time. So we got a new CEO and then, and then um, the CEO comes in, he says, you know, we've expanded too fast. I'm going to have to do a layoff. And I want you, John, right after lunch on Friday, I want you to get up and inspire the company about why this is going to still be a great company, because despite the layoff, why we're going to do great things. And that was really a, a call to stand up and, and say what you believe in and really articulate it clearly and say, look, this is difficult. Yeah, we all know the people being laid off, but we have to move forward. We've got to continue to focus on making a great company out of this. No doubt. And, you know, currently as the chairman of Alphabet, you're one of the most successful holding companies and you engage in the acquisition and management and growth of some of the most significant companies in the world. And I would love for you to share with us what you're looking for when you acquire you know, in, in these companies, some people have heard of before. I think if they don't know Alphabet, you might be able to mention a few. I think there's over 200 now <laughs> that you've acquired. Uh, you, can, you feel free to mention a few. But what are you looking for to make, you know, I mean, your companies are so successful. What, what, what do you really look for in those companies? Yeah, well, I think we're looking for, uh, often looking to diversify our product space, particularly, particularly for a company like Alphabet, whose core Google search ad business is the core of the business, but we're looking to branch out and do new things. Um, and we're looking for uh, technologies and user communities, which could really grow. I, I still remember when we bought um, YouTube and 
it seemed like we're going to pay billions of dollars for this company that has no no revenue and not even a plan to get revenue. Um, and it, it, it's taken a while to really build the company up to the point where it's really a success. But now it's a key part uh, of the alphabet of the alphabet strategy. Um, and I think we look for things like that when we bought the company that um, eventually built Android. Um, we realized mobile, we saw mobile as the future and that people would go, a lot of people would switch from desktop to mobile. And so we wanted to be there with the technology that offered uh, an opportunity to uh, get a great freely licensed software system and put it up on phone and really build phones into great things. And how important, you know, as I was involved with Google very early with Sequoia and you see it was, you know, truly just an optimization tool the first time I looked at Google, you know, how important is the entrepreneur or the team with the idea? How, how, where do you rank those two if you have this, you know, idea that we need something like Android, but if the team, you know, may not be capable, where and how do you evaluate that? Well, you know, the way I, I look at it, I always, when I, when I look at a new young startup, I look at three things. What's the technology and how secure is their lead? Is it protectable? Do they have a moat around themselves so that they can get out there? Second, what's the risk around the business? Um, if, they, if they start putting this out there, will people buy it? Will the dog eat the dog food is what we usually, we usually say. And then there's team risk. Can the team hold together? Can they correctly analyze their shortcomings? Um, particularly, particularly now with lots of founder CEOs, I want a founder CEO who may conclude at some point that it's time to bring in another person as CEO, that they've reached the capacity of their experience and their knowledge, and we need to bring in somebody else. Or they can bring in a strong COO. You know, they can do the Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, deal. That's a fine approach too. Or do what we did in the case of Google, right? Eric Schmidt was the right starting CEO. And then it got to a point where Larry could take over and he did the job for a while and then handed it on to Sundar. So that, that kind of progression is quite natural. And you want a team that has the maturity that they can make those changes when they're necessary. Yeah, in reflection of my career, I, I'm a great opening CEO. And as I left Samsung and their phone division, I learned it in my early 30s. Uh, as we became the second largest manufacturer of phones that I had outkicked my coverage both in marriage and in my profession. And it was a humbling experience. Uh, but that humility to me has been one of the cornerstones to my success. How important is humility with 200 of the greatest companies in the world and all the successes you've had in academia and in, in finance? How important is humility throughout that process? Well, I, I think humility is vitally important. And the bigger the organization you lead, the more important it is to be humble because you can't know, you simply can't know everything. Humility makes it very easy to say, I don't know what the best way to do this is. Can we find somebody in the company that has the expertise? You don't need to be the biggest cheese, the person who knows it has all the answers. Uh, and, and I think that's why it's really crucial. It also... Humility is also important because it's a team success. It's never a one person success. Everybody, particularly in a startup, everybody's working hard to make an important contribution. And, and letting, letting the light fall on everybody in the team and sharing the glory of what they've accomplished 
And if you're you're humble, it's a lot easier to do that than if you have a very large ego. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm gonna test your ego right now because there's three types of intelligence. Uh, of course, academic intelligence, your IQ, and then emotional intelligence. And today, I believe the third intelligence will prevail, which is adaptable intelligence and entrepreneurial intelligence. And it, it is an intelligence, and especially with COVID in the last nine months, pivoting seems to be you know what used to intention or whatever the, the theme word of the year would be, it's definitely pivot. Um, one of the things that I've learned through the companies and analyzing the ones that you have in your career is that some people have this great adaptable intelligence. What are some of those capabilities that people should have today as advice if they're looking at the evolution? I always say, be happy where you're at, angle to what you want, have faith you'll end up somewhere better. But you got to be able to pivot in order to do that. What are some of the pieces of advice that you could give us about these types of opportunities? Well, Dave, I think you're exactly right. The ability to pivot, particularly in the technology industry where things are fast moving. And when you see companies which grow very successfully and then fade over time, it's often because they don't pivot. The space has changed, things are changing, and they haven't changed along with it. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a key thing. And you see these, you see great companies that have made pivots. Look at Netflix. You know, we pivot from mailing out DVDs to online streaming. And yeah, there was a glitch when they made that pivot, but now look how well they're doing, right? So that kind of pivot is a key element uh, of what you have to do. And you have to do it with small companies too. You don't always know. I remember when we built the second company that I uh, helped start, Atheros. You know, we started out, we we're building we're building early wireless technology. This is before Wi-Fi became a standard or anything like that. And for us, a key focus initially was how do you wire up houses um, and get them wired up? But the minute Intel announced that laptops should have Wi-Fi in, we pivoted immediately because that was going to be the big growth market, the explosive market that we could deliver into. And we had the technology. Um, and it was, it was an odd thing because you think here's this little company, Intel announces we're going to put Wi-Fi in everything and we're going to build Wi-Fi. And one way of looking at it is, oh my goodness, Intel is going to crush us. The other way of looking at it is Intel is going to make the market. If you can build better technology, you can be very successful. And that's indeed the last is what happened. Yeah, I love the way that you see the synergies and supplementary capabilities align them with the companies and the venture side of it. And as I look and study as I am a student of this, it's incredible how that vision occurs. One of the other things that I was curious about uh, as you're a little later in your career than I am right now and much more success so far, not, you know, I was an early success and people automatically in my twenties were talking about my legacy. And it was very difficult for me because I was in my twenties. And I think it fed into my ego and caused me to have some real challenges in my 30s and 40s because so early on I was, you know, put upon, you know, what's your legacy going to be? You're going to build schools, David. And, and I would love, you know, your perspective kind of on the side where your legacy is already built, you know, how you dealt with the legacy issue from your early successes through your career. You know, I, I concluded that I didn't want to start worrying about legacy too early because there's a danger of that. You can become a little too risk aversive uh, and you're not willing to take the next chance, take the next 
uh, endeavor. And that I've always been a doer. I've never been a, a person who's content to sit on the sideline and, and take care of the store. I'm going to be a doer. That's the kind of person I am. So I, I, I thought about it over various phases in my career. And when I decided to step down as, as president of Stanford, um, I, I wrestled with what I would do next. I had lots of board offers. I could have just gone on a bunch of boards and done that. Um, and instead I decided I wanted to do one, one more big thing. And that became the Knight Hennessy Scholarship Program that we're building, which has the most incredible young people you'd ever want to meet from around the world. They are absolutely stunning what they've already accomplished, but more importantly, what they're going to accomplish over the next 20, 10 or 20 years in a, in a world that badly needs new leaders across all sectors. Um, so I decided that was really what I could put my focus on. And it was something that since I'm a lifelong educator, I believed in, I thought I could do a good job doing it. And I thought I could do some good for the world. And you are, and that list of the recipients will be ones uh, that will change the world, just like other great foundations and funds that are created for those types of empowering things. I will tell you, uh, this has been a golden nugget full session of lessons. And if anyone hasn't uh, listened closely, go back. Luckily, there is technology that records these things and we can replay it on Spotify and Entrepreneur and other places. So John, uh, any I, when I have legends like yourself, What's your favorite quote, you know, one of your favorite quotes, I say favorite, you know, what, what's your favorite quote or one liner that you would tell your children, uh, you know, as the best piece of advice or encouragement? Uh, there's a great, a great quote, which is often attributed apocryphally to, to Socrates. It's probably not by him, but <laughs> which I'll paraphrase. It basically says, regard your name as your most precious, precious jewel, because reputation is like fire. Once it's started, it's easy to keep it going. But once it's extinguished, it may be hard to restart. I love that. And you are a diamond, a well-preserved diamond. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Playbook as much as me. On a personal note, I just wanted to thank everyone for making The Playbook such a success. Don't forget to continue it by sharing, subscribing, and listening to your favorite episodes. This is Dave Meltzer with The Playbook.